This is an ABC podcast. Okay. Producer sent me a link to some videos. Okay, it's a blue carpeted auditorium. Uh, it looks like it's in Korea and they're having a race between a rabbit and a tortoise. Not a hare, that's a rabbit. <laughs> and they're off. Okay, the rabbit goes halfway and stops and it's just looking around. And the tortoise is plodding, plodding, plodding. Yeah, the tortoise wins. <laughs> what the duck. Welcome to What the Duck, the ABC Science podcast, where we try to get to the bottom of the mysteries in the natural world. Like whether a hare could actually beat a tortoise in a race. Now, this story is actually one of Aesop's fables, a collection of stories that apparently date from around 600 years before that other great short story author, Christ. Slow and steady winds, the race, the lion's share, sour grapes, crying wolf. You've probably heard these phrases all throughout your life, and they've all come from Aesop's fables. So, who was this Aesop person? The truth is we don't really know a huge amount about Aesop, whether he was actually a real person. Dr Jo Wimpenny is a zoologist turned writer, and she's recently had a book called Aesop's Animals, the science behind the fables. So the popular view is that he was a slave in ancient Greek times and that he won his freedom by telling pithy little stories which really impressed the upper echelons, I suppose, of society. And there is evidence that other Greek scholars believed he was real. But on the other hand, I think modern historians have pointed out lots and lots of inconsistencies in stories of his life. So it's possible that he wasn't a real person. And when you think about it, it possibly doesn't matter if he's a real person or not. What matters is that these stories have persisted and become part of our understanding of the world and even our language. But what happens when you get your scientific magnifying glass out and you go over these stories to see if there's any truth in them? The first story we've got is The Crow and the Pitcher, not least of all because Joe Wimpenny's PhD focused on the New Caledonian crows, billed as the smartest bird brains in all the world. In the fable, you have a thirsty crow, you know, really parched, trying to get water, comes across a pitcher that has water in it. Its head fits in the jug, but no matter how hard it stretches, its beak just doesn't quite make it to the level of the water. So what it does is it goes away and it picks up stones and one by one it drops the stones into the pitcher. Back and forward, back and forward it goes, putting stones into the water inside the vessel. And by doing so, it raises the level of the water high enough for it to be able to drink. Ingenious and... To be honest, if I was thirsty, I don't know that I'd come up with such a clever solution. But is there any scientific truth to this? Could a corvid solve this thirsty puzzle? All right, you lot, I'm not asking you. You're biased. So it has been put to the test. And the team that did this actually used rooks. So they're another species of corvid. And the team at Cambridge used them in a pretty much exact replica of the experiment, with the exception that the the birds were not parched of water. That would not be something that would be okay to do. But what they did was they tacked 
little worms onto pieces of cork and they got them bobbing on the surface of the water uh, and they set stones around on the table and the rooks did it. Everything that we're finding out about the Corvid family points to them being, you know, these incredibly quick learners that can create their own novel solutions to problems and across a lot of different domains as well when it comes to things like memory and how they interact with others in their groups and this kind of physical problem solving too so undoubtedly you can say they're intelligent birds but they're not intelligent in the way that humans are intelligent so that would be the caution i would say Joe says that it's more nuanced than just being smarties. These particular rooks had been in an experiment before, where to get a snack, they needed to drop stones into a tube. So they probably don't have an understanding of hydrodynamics, but they did know that moving stones could mean rewards. So when they came into the experiment, they'd sort of almost already been reinforced for this behaviour. And it doesn't I mean, it's any less impressive. It just provides a little bit more of a framework in which to interpret this kind of thing. In some problems, they do things that look incredibly complex, and they are incredibly complex, but sometimes you'll see them fail to do something that looks very simple on the surface. And I'm really keen that people don't have, you know, the scientific background. Just think a little bit more about when they see these examples of, you know, a clever crow doing something, then what actually might be going on. Because the truth can often be even more exciting in a way than just thinking about them as little feathered people. <laughs> little fe- That sounds creepy, little feathered people. <laughs> Okay, so a corvid dropping stones into a pitcher in order to bring the water level up to the top? Plausible. Did Aesop get this one right? Yes, I think he got it right. I've seen it borne out. But what can we conclude about their intelligence from that? That's the much trickier question. Myth checks out. The expert says plausible. These days, we think of lions probably being an exclusively African thing. I think we probably imagine them to be on a savanna with flies around their eyes and getting hungry, then going off to pack hunt and have their lives narrated by a documentary voiceover. But Aesop, he had an entirely different lion story to tell. So the lion was in the forest. I'm imagining oaks and acorns and truffles and blackberries. It got a big thorn in its paw, obviously in a lot of pain, and it came across a shepherd. Who, instead of crapping his dax, helped it. So um, it got the thorn out. They part ways, go on to live their lives until, in separate and unrelated incidents... Both Lion and the shepherd were captured, and then the shepherd was sacrificed in an arena, intended to be sacrificed uh, to the lions. Major gladiator vibes here. And one of them happened to be the one that he had helped. And apparently the lion went up to the shepherd and placed his paw on the man's leg, like he was a Saint Bernard puppy waiting for a pat. It didn't kill him, and upon seeing this, the, the king released them both. And from here, I imagine they go on to be lifelong friends. They live together in a shared apartment in Athens, a la the odd couple. Lions are, in general, portrayed as being 
regal and strong, but are they portrayed as having this reciprocal sort of relationship? Well, there was another fable in the collection which involved a mouse, and in this one, the mouse actually chewed through ropes that were binding a, a lion and sort of said, you know, I'll do this if you spare my life. <laughs> you know, and the lion did. Mm. They're lions of their word. There are a couple of examples where they are portrayed in this in this kind of, yeah, um, <laughs> benevolent dictator kind of way where, where they do sort of stick to their word. Oof, well, we all know where a benevolent dictator story ends though, right? But still, maybe lions could be compassionate kings, you know, the exception to the rule that all power corrupts. But they're also thought of as being extremely cooperative um, animals and reciprocal altruism is a form of cooperation. So that was kind of the basis for this story. Okay, so let's unpack that a bit, because what is lion life actually like? What do we actually scientifically know about it? Yeah, so lions are quite unusual among the felid family. Most felids are solitary. So lions are this outlier, really, because they live in these big social groups. So the lion pride and they're females, they're related. So when uh, females are born, they tend to stay with their mothers and their aunts in these prides. And then males live in little coalitions until they can take over a pride and they might stay with a pride for an average of, say, one to two years, depending on how many males there are. And during that time, they have kind of breeding rights over the females in their group, but they're under constant challenge from other males in coalitions who also are driven to be holding a pride. This is all motivated by the drive to have your genetics included in the next generation. And it's not sounding very altruistic at this point. Right. So because males have this relatively short tenure mm. as a pride holder, they exhibit something called infanticide. So when they take over a pride, if there are cubs still with their mothers, they will often be killed by the incoming males. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it makes people wince to hear that, but it is, it's simply for the reason that while mothers still have cubs that are being weaned, they are not receptive to breeding. Brutal. And even though that seems like bad news for the lion of his word in Aesop's fables, there are aspects of lion life where they do exhibit cooperation, like the male alliances and also the mostly female hunts. Um, so the amount that they cooperate during hunting really comes down to the ecology uh -huh. of that environment. So in very harsh environments, they will cooperate more because it makes much more sense to to get everyone involved, really. And that's where they do the kind of like flanking, you know, the military manoeuvres and all of that. Um, Which I can't watch, by the way. <laughs> I find that terrifying. <laughs> Anyway, I know, you wouldn't want to be wandering around um, in the savannah when there's a group of hungry females, absolutely not. <laughs> and is the workload and the spoils of hunting distributed evenly as in an idyllic socialist economy? Well, no, no, it's not. 
And actually, there were some experiments that showed that sometimes females in the pride do freeload a little bit. So, um, you know, if (laughs) they did this by sort of playing calls of intruding females. And what the researchers found is that there were some laggards that basically just let the others in their group you know, run towards the the simulated calls and, and they just sort of hung back a little bit. So there is evidence that they, you know, ser- they're not all equally um, cooperative, should we say. Right. So not all of them have that Protestant work ethic of getting up every morning and toil, toil, toil. <laughs> I love how the lion's world is like a soapy. There's multiple fathers, there's lazy sisters, bossy aunties, lots of sex, stepchildren, and it's all just very messy. But none of this is suggesting that a lion would pay back a good deed like in the fable. Right. So there is no evidence of reciprocal altruism in lions. They're not a good character to be portraying that behaviour. So their cooperation is either driven by them being related to the others in their group or in the case of unrelated males, it's driven by the fact that it's just beneficial for both of them, but it's nothing to do with them wanting to help the other uh, in return for a, for a favour. Are there any animals that have scientifically demonstrated to show reciprocal altruism? There have. Um, some of the best evidence comes from studies of rats, which are extremely sociable little animals. And experiments have shown that they will, for example, help another rat that they are bonded with. Like grooming. If a rat can't reach the back of its own neck, its friend will help. And the first study in animals that was really the one that said, wow, other animals do this uh, was in vampire bats. Monkey sucking vampire bats. These are in Central America, by the way. We have no blood drinking bats in Australia. So these little bats do drink blood. They will drink from cattle uh, or horses. It's not like they're going and, and draining the blood of animals or anything like that. But they'll take a little bit each night. And because they're little, it's really important that they get fed. So if they go for something like three days without securing a meal, that could be the difference between life and death. And so these experiments found that animals in the colony who had failed to secure a meal would beg to others in the colony and others would actually feed them. So they would feed them with their own congealed blood, uh, which sounds horrible. (laughs) Uh, Obviously very important for the animals that were starving. And in most cases, it was mothers doing this to their offspring, but there were cases where unrelated animals would donate blood to others in their colony. And more experiments have now shown that that's quite dependent on um, having a bond. The bat is more likely to donate to uh, an individual that it already has a relationship with. So, Joe Wimpenny says, plausible. But maybe with a rat or a vampire bat, but not a big cat. Probably the most well-known of all Aesop's fables is the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise 
was fed up of the hair bragging about how fast it was for a start um, and so challenged it to a race and the hare being extremely arrogant said of course this is going to be really easy. Yeah on the face of it it's an easy win. The tortoise has a big heavy domed shell, it has a geriatric looking head and its feet stick out like salamis that have been left in the desert. It moves as if it's a mechatronic toy rather than an animal. So yeah, the hare, essentially being a four-wheel drive rabbit, the hare should win. They set off and so the hare went and had a nap. Oh, the arrogance. Basically, because it thought, I've got loads of time. Scrolling through Instagram, online shopping, getting distracted halfway through making a cup of tea. And then uh, the, the tortoise ended up winning. The hare woke up from its nap just to see the tortoise crossing the line. Yay! Yes, it's the fable that I think has really sunk into our collective kind of consciousness, really. It really has, with all sorts of different moral messages being delivered in a hare and tortoise-shaped package over the intervening thousands of years. This great moral tale that arrogance only gets you so far. It's hard work, plodding on. That's what we really need to all be doing. So, has this one been tested? Um, not scientifically. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've only seen rabbits together in races. But sure, there have been examples where people have pitted these animals together and and the tortoise has indeed won, but I wouldn't say it's been um, scientifically studied, no. And when people ask me, you know, is there truth? Could the tortoise actually win? I think the answer has to be, it very much depends. Tortoises are extremely persistent in what they do. So basically, once they get going, they pretty much keep going. I spoke with Anna Wilkinson, who studies tortoises. And she basically said, you know, she's seen a large tortoise just sort of push down a wall eventually because they just persist at what they're doing. They will just keep going. Whereas a hare in its natural environment spends a lot of time just hunkered down in its fold. It might only dash out if it feels under threat. And the other thing about the hare is that when they do feel threatened, when they are sprinting, they're quite often doing it running around and jinking, which is what it's called when they make these incredibly fast turns, um, jinking off into another direction. So, you know, if you put the two of them onto a straight track and somehow induced them both to sprint as fast as they could, then probably, yeah, the hare will win if you can get it to run in a straight line. (laughs) In the right direction. Um, Of course, the hare is orders of magnitude faster than the fastest tortoise. But I think when you look at their behaviour a bit more, then conceivably there might be situations where the tortoise does just get on with it and the hare doesn't. The fable of the tortoise and the hare? Plausible. I always liked to go for the underdog, so (laughs) I like to think that the tortoise could get it. I was wondering how they got together for the race, whether it was like the hare was having like a Corsican holiday or something like that and uh, at the Mediterranean (laughs) and they just, you know, had too many wines at the seashore or something and decided to go for it. 
So what do you reckon that Aesop would have thought about all of this? Well, there's a question. I don't know, really. He wasn't a scientist. I think he'd be amazed to know that the stories still play such a prominent role in our societies and around the world have formed the basis for other folk stories and things like that. I think he'd probably just be incredulous about that. You know, I suppose one of the other things, he would have no idea how much the world has changed and how much the lives of these animals differs to in his time. So there might have been lions in Greece when he was around in ancient times, but, you know, there certainly aren't now. And across the world, lion populations are in freefall. Now, did writing this book and going in-depth into the fables, did that change how you thought you might like to present your present-day science? I mean, I think it impressed even more on me the power of storytelling, I suppose, and whether or not we could construct new fables. You know, I think I'm not against stories. They're so important for engaging people about the world. And I suppose my take on this is that fictional animal representations, it's not a problem, but it's when those representations cross over into our understanding or our beliefs about how animals truly are, Mm. that I think it becomes a little bit problematic. And so, you know, for example, the wolf. So the wolf has a really bad reputation. And, you know, in Aesop's fables, it was portrayed as being a bloodthirsty, deceptive beast that prowled around, but also had the mind of an animal that would intentionally deceive and trick you for its own gain. And wolves are still portrayed in ways that I think are very unfair to them because they're not grounded in biology. Mm, Yeah. It also brings to mind the issue of brumbies in the highlands in Australia where the scientific evidence is clearly pointing to environmental damage, but the facts are battling against a public perception of wild horses, of this anthropomorphised freedom-fighting horse galloping along a ridgeline representing some unattainable spiritual liberty. Our minds, I think, are really well-tuned for stories. You know, narratives are so powerful and they, they really work. They resonate with people and they make people feel emotions about something. And once those things, the seeds have been sown, um, I think it's incredibly difficult Mm. to overcome this. The data and the facts alone are rarely going to be enough to to change people's minds about something. Yeah. Maybe we do need new fables or new stories just to balance these out and to actually portray the animals in the right way. Oh, that's a good idea. Have you heard the fable of the farting duck and the hunter? There once was a duck living in a marsh who had gastrointestinal issues and would fluffy up a storm if alarmed. Oh, excuse you. And on the 16th of March 2022, up came a creeping, creeping, creeping hunter, gun-loaded and ready to shoot only the legal game species out of the sky. Pow, pow, pow. Oh, fuck, what was that? 
there was hardly a duck left. Nary a water bird in the swamp. <coughs> the hunter thinks, what was that? <coughs> the hunter bursts out laughing so hard that he doubles over with his hand to his knee. And the duck peeks out from behind the reeds, revealing itself as the most gorgeous female, a small crown as if a queen, followed by a clutch of equally pretty princess ducks frutting along behind her. <coughs> The hunter pulls up his rifle to his eye, the single mother duck in the sight, and... At the last moment, the duck lets off a gaseous emission that resonates so strongly that the ground wobbles, the water waves, the hunter shakes with laughter and... accidentally shoots himself in the leg. The moral of the story is that nature is beautiful and complex and smelly, and if we duck with it for no good reason it's going to result in more than a shooting accident. What the Duck is the production of ABC Science. I'm Dr Anne Jones and I produce the program along with Patria Ladgrove and script editing by Joel Werner. And if there's a mystery that you have or a story that's too weird and needs scientific checking out, then email us whattheduck at abc.net.au. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.